Good morning. I'm Shamita Basu. And I'm Duarte Geraldino. This is Apple News Today. Each morning, hear about some of the most fascinating stories in the news and how the world's best journalists are covering them. But first, let's catch up with some of the day's top headlines. First, the U.S. forced China to vacate its Houston, Texas consulate. Now Beijing is ordering Americans to shut down its consulate in Chengdu. At his Thursday coronavirus briefing, President Trump acknowledged that some school districts in pandemic hotspots would likely have to delay the start of fall classes. His comments came just before the CDC updated its guidelines, which now acknowledge the risks of reopening and emphasize personal decisions each family will need to make. And the inspectors general for the Justice Department and Homeland Security are now investigating the use of force against demonstrators in Portland, Oregon and Washington, D.C. We begin today with a story from ProPublica, The New York Times Magazine, and The Pulitzer Center. Environmental journalist Abram Lustgarten spent two years documenting the urgency of climate change and its impact on global migration. The planet is warming, and more and more people won't be able to live off their land, off of the food that's always sustained them. And this isn't a problem that's going to happen sometime way in the future. It's already happening. In South Asia, millions of people have left their homes because the farming they've always done has become too difficult. In Syria, even before the war, people were fleeing the country because of drought. The ProPublica reporter estimates by the year 2070, nearly 20 percent of the planet will be extreme hot zones. So hot that you can't really live there. Yeah, I mean, these publications actually modeled how climate change will alter migration patterns. They put real numbers to this crisis. Lost Garden projects on the high end. At least 30 million people will try to make it to the United States over the next three decades. Mm. But if the global community does not act soon and the U.S. keeps restricting movement across its southern border, he predicts unimaginable suffering. Millions of people will settle in Central America. There will Mm. be hunger, extreme poverty, and few economic opportunities. Yeah, and by the way, the reporter here published his methodology on ProPublica's website. According to his reporting, with every degree that temperatures go up, another billion people's lives are at stake. And as the headline of this piece asks, where will everyone go? Congress did something a little unexpected this week. It passed a once-in-a-generation bill aimed at environmental conservation. And President Trump has said that he's planning to sign it. It's called the Great American Outdoors Act. Lawmakers have been trying to get this bill passed for about two decades now. So first, here's what it does. There's a part of the budget called the Land and Water Conservation Fund. Every year when Congress has to negotiate over this part of the budget, the funds for it are not guaranteed. Mm -hmm. This bill changes that. Now, the funds will get an automatic $900 million a year, distributed across every congressional district. And it's going to be used for things like maintaining parks and hiking trails. Yeah, and the president did a total 180 on this. Earlier this year, he was ready to axe the budget for conservation funding. The Washington Post has details of how this happened. Hmm. Two Republican senators, Colorado's Cory Gardner and Montana's Steve Daines, are facing uphill re-election battles this November. And they really needed some kind of big win in their states. They met with President Trump in March and laid this out for him. They showed him pictures of the national parks in their states. They argued that supporting this bill would be great for their re-election campaigns and great for his legacy, too. Mm. Soon after, Trump publicly praised the bill. And now both senators are campaigning in their states on having gotten this done. 
cities across the country are taking down Confederate monuments. And it's bringing up all these questions about how we talk about our history. But now we're left with a more practical question. These statues are down. Where do we put them? The Wall Street Journal went looking for answers. Baltimore has a couple of Confederate memorials that have been sitting in the city transportation department yard for the past three years. The city tried to move them to another county and to a local cemetery, but they were all rejected. Now, they're thinking about selling them and using the money to pay for scholarships for black students. In Dallas, the city auctioned off a statue of Robert E. Lee for $1.4 million, with the condition that the statue not be publicly displayed in Dallas. An unnamed buyer bought it, and it's now being placed on a golf resort in western Texas. The owners of the resort say that they will display it with a new plaque that calls the Civil War, quote, the saddest time in American history. And this isn't exactly a small problem to solve. As of 2019, The Southern Poverty Law Center counted 780 Confederate monuments still in public spaces around the United States. And finally, if you've ever seen the Ruth Bader Ginsburg biopic on the basis of sex, there's this scene where the dean of Harvard Law School back in 1956 invites Ginsburg and her other women classmates over for dinner. And he goes around the table and asks each of them to answer. Why you're occupying a place at Harvard that could have gone to a man. But the way that Justice Ginsburg tells the story today, that dean was very much an ally. He supported women being at Harvard. And by asking that question, he was trying to arm himself with comebacks for any of the men who might have thought otherwise. That's just one of the fascinating anecdotes about women in the Harvard Law School class of 1959. You learned about it in a new interview series in Slate. Now, Dolly Lithwick and Molly Olmsted conducted these interviews. There were hundreds of men in that class, but only 10 women. And it took the reporters over a year to interview all the women who are still alive today. But they did it including getting a chance to talk with Justice Ginsburg herself about that time. And even though they all recognized that they were definitely being treated and judged differently because of their gender, the way Justice Ginsburg puts it, these women were not, quote, flaming feminists. For many of them, going to law school wasn't some big statement on gender. The expectations that were put on them once they got in the classroom to carry the banner for their entire gender, that part was unexpected. And they all had a really difficult time getting jobs after. By the way, they got this part right in the movie. When the dean asked Ginsburg that question at dinner, why she was at Harvard, she said at the time, My husband Marty is in the second year class. I'm at Harvard to learn more about his work so I can be a more patient and understanding wife. That is what she said. But she tells Slate today she'd change her answer. She was there because she wanted to study law, not because she wanted to follow her husband. And in fact... She took the LSATs a year before Marty. You can find all these stories and more in the Apple News app. And while you're there, check out our latest feature, Audio Stories. These are narrated versions of articles from some of the best magazines and newspapers, available to News Plus subscribers in our new audio tab. Because great journalism deserves to be seen and heard. Join us again Monday. 